0: Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcasts at nlutheranpodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at eric, E-R-I-K, dot Anderson, at nllutheran.com. Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from John, the 19th chapter. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, "Woman, here's your son." Then he said to the disciple, "Here is your mother." And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, "In order to fulfill scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The gospel of the Lord. Well, over the past seven weeks, we have stepped into a sermon series called Conversations with Jesus. And it actually has been stemming from your questions. You see, right away, I challenged you. I said, what are the questions that you would ask Jesus if you could ask him anything? And the questions began to flood in. In fact, many of the questions actually became stacked on top of each other because they were all the same. A lot of you guys had the same concerns and questions that you would ask Jesus. Well, today, we bring this conversation to a close. This is our our final week of this sermon series with one of the most challenging questions that you guys have asked. It's a question directly connected to loss. It's a question directly connected to death. Nathan Randall Yunker, age 30, of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Died Monday, June 29th of 2009. The visitation was Friday, July 3rd, 2009, from 5 until 8 p.m. at the Grand Rapids Assembly of God Church, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and continued Saturday, July 4th, 2009, from 9 until 10 a.m. The funeral service was also held at the church with arrangements made by Rowe Funeral Home of Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Rev. Tom Parker and Rev. Paul Losick officiated. The burial was at Harris Cemetery in Harris Township, Minnesota. In lieu of flowers, memorials were preferred and are to be sent to the Nathan Yunker Memorial Trust, care of Wells Fargo Bank, 220th Northwest 1st Avenue, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, 55744. In 1979, Nathan was born to Randall and Debbie Yunker in Waconia, Minnesota. He graduated from Grand Rapids High School in 1997. He attended Crown College in St. Bonifatius, Minnesota, and graduated in 2000 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Bible and Theology, and later attended Canadian Theological Seminary in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Nathan was united in marriage to Samantha Weedman on June 29, 2002, in Plymouth, Wisconsin. They lived in Apple Valley, Minnesota, while he was a youth pastor at Hope Church in Apple Valley, Minnesota. In 2003, they moved to New Brighton, Minnesota, where Nathan was employed with ACR Homes as a caregiver and paraprofessional in Shoreview, Minnesota, at an emotional and behavioral disorder high school. Nathan and Sam moved to Grand Rapids, Minnesota in 2006, when Nathan became the youth pastor and then later the associate pastor at Faith Baptist Church in Grand Rapids. Nathan was involved with programs with religious activities for youth as a leader and frequently attended the Grand Rapids Ministerial Association and the Pastors Prayer Fellowship. He was an avid reader and an excellent writer and preacher who was very involved with the youth. He loved everyone unconditionally, especially his family and the Lord. Nathan loved comic books and superheroes. He often joked with his children that he was a dad by day and a superhero by night. He is preceded in death by his maternal grandmother, Milton Erdman, survived by his wife, Samantha, three daughters, Lauren, six years old, Alexandra, three and a half years old, Journey, one and a half years old, one son, Lincoln, four months old, parents, Reverend Randy and Debbie Yunker of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, two sisters, Tiffany Worms of Glencoe, Minnesota, Nadine Burkhart of Wakonia, Minnesota, one brother, Tim Yunker of Grand Rapids, Minnesota, His paternal grandparents, Fred and Joan Yunker, of Mountain Lake, Minnesota. His maternal grandmother, Cora Erdman, of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada. Here's Nathan's story. A summer outing turned tragic when Nathan Yunker, 30, and Albert Hermiston, 63, lost their lives on June 28th after they jumped into the choppy waters of Pogama Lake in Minnesota to rescue students who were struggling to stay afloat. Younger's father, Randy, is the pastor of Grand Rapids Alliance Church in the same state. Younger, an associate pastor at Faith Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, and Hermiston, a layman, had brought the church's junior high youth group for a day of fun in the sun. The students were on a sandbar near Drumbeater Island, but the weather changed, and the waves of the lake grew to swells that were several feet high, and the group was swept out by the waves and wind. When the men saw the students struggling, they went out to help them. Hermiston gave away his life vest and the efforts of the men allowed all the students to make it back safely. However, Hermiston and Junker did not. Hermiston was found soon afterwards, but attempts to resuscitate him were futile. Junker's body was found the following day. Witnesses called Junker and Hermiston heroes who gave their lives to save children adding that their sacrifice will always be remembered. You see, as we step into our our question for today, it came to me from you because every one of us has a Nathan in our lives. Every one of us has somebody in our life, a good person, a person who's making impact in this life who died far too soon. So as we finish up this series, we need to step back into our story, step back into your story. So I need you to imagine it's last Saturday again. And if you recall, what's happening is you've, you've gone out to your favorite coffee shop. It's early in the morning. And when you got out of your car, there was a bunch of people standing in line at your favorite coffee shop, which was so strange because no one is there typically, typically. It's normally a ghost house. It's just you and a muffin and coffee. But this time there's a line of people out the door. And if you remember, you got out and you asked them what's going on. They said, Jesus is here. But if you don't have a question, you can walk around. And so you do. Jesus waves you over and you listen to all of their questions and question after question after question, even though they're unique to the individual, all have a similar theme. They all want to know why, even though they have a relationship with God, why do they still struggle? Why do they still battle addictions? Why is there still sin that creeps out of them that they don't want in their lives? And you hear Christ's response. He says, they will have struggles in this life. But he's going to walk with them through each and every struggle. And not only that, but he's going to use their weakness, their struggles, and their addictions for his glory to tell his story. So as the people make their way back home, you're left alone with Jesus. And he turns and looks at you and says, do you have one last question for me? And so you turn to him and you ask him the question that many of us have on our hearts. Jesus, why would you take a good person too soon? Jesus, there's so many bad people out there that are still alive. They bring nothing to life. In fact, they do damage in people's lives, but they're still here. So why would you take a good person, somebody who's making a positive impact in life, and, and why would they die too soon? When well, Jesus looks at you, he says, I want to tell you my story. In fact, one of the most difficult parts of my story, one of the difficult points in my life, and so he begins to tell you the section of his story in the Gospel of John. And this is what it says. Meanwhile, well, as we step into the Gospel of John, we get a hint that a lot has happened in a short period of time, and truly it has. You see, before we get into Christ's story, we need to understand what's happened so far. See what's happened in the last couple of days is his Christ has had his last supper with his disciples, his closest friends. One final meal where he instituted the Lord's Supper for each and every one of us. And he told them something very troubling. He said, one of you will betray me, which put all this question in their minds. Is it me? Could it be me? How could anyone betray Jesus? He's such a good person. He does such amazing things. Who would turn on Christ? in the midst of their sorrows, in the midst of this turmoil, they go to the place of peace, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus goes and and prays. In fact, his prayer is so intense that he begins to sweat blood, a, a medical condition called hematidrosis, where you're so stressed and so overrun by life that you actually begin to sweat blood. So Jesus prays and he comes back to his disciples and they've all fallen asleep because they are fatigued and stressed and he wakes them up. And as they're about to leave the garden, this brigade of temple guards shows up. The Sanhedrin shows up. The religious Jewish leaders show up. And they pin Jesus there. And they're going to take him by force. Peter, one of Christ's disciples, he reacts. He pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants to try to stop this from happening. But Jesus heals the man and goes with them quietly. Well, as he goes to this trial in front of the Sanhedrin? They begin to ask him questions, trying to coax him into saying something that would be worthy of death. And one of the things that they asked him was, Are you God? And he says, Yes. A punishment worthy of death. A punishment for blasphemy. You see, they didn't understand that he was God in the flesh. And so they needed to kill him, but they couldn't kill him because Rome was in charge. Rome had the authority. They didn't have the authority to kill Jesus, so they took Jesus to Pilate. Pilate heard Christ's words and was not convinced that he was guilty. So he sent him over to Herod, and Herod, out of curiosity, listens to the story, wants to meet Jesus, wants to have this conversation with Jesus, and then sends him back to Pilate. The people are still pressuring Pilate. They still want him to do something. They still want to put Christ on a cross, and Pilate says, he's innocent. But the pressure is too great. So he comes up with a plan. He, he brings out one of the notorious evil people that these that people would know, Barabbas. And he puts him up right here next to Jesus. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I will release one of these men, but the other person will go to the cross. And the crowd cheers. Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Put him back into our society, into our hometown. Give us Barabbas, but put Jesus on the cross. So Pilate, he washes his hands. And Jesus is whipped and beaten and ridiculed. In fact, by the time he has to carry the cross, he's too weak to carry the cross. And he begins to stumble and fall. And so they pull this guy out of the crowd. His name is Simon. And Simon carries the cross for Jesus to its final destination. And it's at that place they pin Jesus to the cross with nails in his hands and his feet. And they hoist him up and they drop him into the dirt with a thud. And then we read these words. Standing near the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. You see, Jesus was very much aware of what was happening. It wasn't a typical deathbed experience where the person is kind of in and out and, and fading away. Jesus is wide awake and the pain is keeping him on high alert. And he can see the people who are there. And you can learn a lot about people by who shows up at your deathbed. So as Jesus looks down, he sees his mother, some close friends his mother's closest friends. All these ladies are there grieving and and watching the slow death of Mary's son. But they weren't alone. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, so Jesus looking down, surveying the crowd, seeing who's there, also sees that the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the apostle John, it's his coy way of saying, I am Christ's best friend, but I'm too humble to say it. John was there. John was there watching his best friend die, supporting the mother of Jesus. And this is what happens. He said to his mother, woman, here is your son. So Jesus looks down, he's surveying the situation and, and he looks at Mary and says, woman, here is your son. Now, he's not talking about him. He's talking about John. You see, you can learn a lot about people by who's at your deathbed. But you can also learn a lot about people by who's not at your deathbed. You see, Christ's half-brothers, right, same mother but different dad, they weren't there. They weren't there watching their brother die. The reason, because they thought he deserved what was coming to him. They thought he was crazy. Their brother was proclaiming that he was God. That is blasphemy and that is worthy of death. So they weren't there to watch the spectacle. They thought he was getting his just desserts. So Jesus looks down at his mother and says, this is now your son. This is the person that you have common faith with. This is the person who I want you to connect with. So he looks down, and he says something to John as well. Here is your mother. John, my brothers are not here. Joseph isn't here. This is your mother. You take care of her like she's your very own. You take care of her like I would take care of her if I wasn't stuck on this cross, if I wasn't about to die. And John listened. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. The Apostle John began to love and care for Mary, just like it was his own mom. He made sure she was fed and clothed and had a roof over her head. In fact, we get a pretty clear picture at this point in time that Joseph must have passed away because otherwise he would be the caregiver for her. But John takes on that role. John, a fellow believer in Christ, takes on that role to watch over Mary. Well, the story continues after this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said in order to fulfill scripture, I am thirsty. So Jesus is hanging on the cross and he, he's realizing that his story, his purpose, his point is coming to an end, but he knows that there's one last prophecy, one last prediction that needs to be fulfilled among all the hundreds of prophecies that point towards Christ and what he has done and to prove to us that he is God. So there's one last prediction in the 69th Psalm that talks about this very moment when Christ would be crucified and thirsty. So he says, I am thirsty because he was. And the soldiers, they responded. A jar full of sour wine was standing there so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and they held it to his mouth. So the soldiers, they felt bad for him because he was parched, he was thirsty. And they had this big vat of sour wine. The reason they had a big vat of sour wine is because their job was to make sure that these guys on the cross died and this would take days sometimes and they would get thirsty. And so they'd bring this big vat of sour wine. Think of it like Gatorade in our modern day so they could drink, and they wouldn't be thirsty. And they felt so bad for Jesus that they actually offered us some. They took a sponge, and they soaked it, and they lifted it up at his mouth so that he could drink. Now, this is actually the second time they had done this. You see, previous to this, they offered him sour wine mixed with gall, which is like a narcotic, to ease his pain, to ease his suffering, to kind of not let him be all there as he went through this experience, but he turned that down. He wanted the full weight of this moment. He wanted full awareness of this moment. But this time, he gratefully receives the wine. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. When Jesus had fulfilled everything that he was supposed to fulfill, when he accomplished everything that he was supposed to accomplish, he said, it is finished. And he put a period at the end of his story. And then he did this. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus was not killed by the Jewish leaders. He wasn't killed by the Romans. He gave up his life for you and for me. But when he died, his family was there. His friend was there. There was a lot of people with this very simple and powerful question that every one of us have at some point in time in our lives. Why would you take a good person too soon? You see, for us, we know the rest of the story, so we don't ask this question about this specific story. But for these people living this moment in history, they could not see the full picture that God was painting. They could only see the brushstroke. And Mary was broken. John was broken. They watched a good person, truly the only good person to ever walk the face of the earth, die at 33 years old. A guy who had dedicated his life to doing miracles and teaching and showing love to people and teaching people how to love got put on a cross and died far too soon. Well, in 2001, I made a pretty drastic life change. I was attending a university called Southwest Minnesota State University, and I I felt called to make a change, and so I ended up going to a small college called Crown College in Minnesota. I didn't know a soul there, but I felt like this is where God was leading me, so I got in my car, and when the semester started, I drove up there, and as you enter into campus, you, you drive down this long, windy road. And since this was the first day, all the RAs were out there greeting people. Many of the professors were out there greeting people, and even the president of the college was greeting people. So as I drove up, I, I rolled down my window so we could talk back and forth. And time after time after time after time, this very strange thing happened. Every person would say, hey, Nathan, how you doing? To which I'd respond, I'm not Nathan. My name is Ben. And it kept happening and happening and happening and happening. Even the president of the college thought I was this guy named Nathan. So as this happened, this happened the whole first semester, and the whole first year, I finally said, who do you guys think that I am? I'm Ben. I'm not Nathan. They said, well, there's this guy. He used to go to school here. His name was Nathan Younger. He was a senior last year. And you look exactly like him. In fact, you look identical to him. Well, fast forward 2009, I had gotten my degree and I was in a very dark place in life. I was in a place in my life where I felt like I had no purpose and no value. Like I couldn't bring anything positive into the world. I felt like my life made no sense. In fact, it had gotten so bad and it had gotten so hopeless that that every night I would come home into my small little apartment I would lay down face first in the living room and I'd pray one simple prayer. God, take me home. God, if this is all life is going to be, I don't want to be here. Take me home. Kill me off. I don't have the courage to do it. And night after night after night, i prayed the same exact prayer. God, if this is all life is, If I can't do anything positive in life, take me home. One night in the midst of my sorrow, I got online, got on Facebook, and I read this story about my doppelganger, a guy named Nathan Yunker, a good guy, a guy who was making a positive influence in the world, a pastor and teacher and writer who cared for the youth of his community, in fact, he cared for them so much that he made the ultimate sacrifice. When he saw them struggling in the water, he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed being a dad. He sacrificed being a husband. And he swam out there to save these kids. And he died in this lake. And as I read his story, I began to pray again. But this time my words changed And I was just mad. God, why would you take somebody like this and leave somebody like me? God, why would you take this good guy, this husband, this father of four, of four young kids, a person who's pouring his life into the betterment of people, uh, sharing your truth, and, and you left me, and I am doing nothing for you. I couldn't do anything for you. I'm offering nothing to people at this point in my life. And it was in this moment as I began to pray that God began to teach me something very powerful. He began to show me that even though we can only see a brushstroke of his story, is a full masterpiece that He is painting. It might not always look like what we, should, we think it should look like, but he's doing something amazing. And he began to teach me something very, very powerful that if I was still here, if he still wanted me here, there was still something for me to do. And I began to see my life as an extension of Nathan's life. See, before Nathan died, he wrote down this statement that he had written in his diary that they they published in the newspaper after he had passed away. And these were his words. Can you believe that God is being good to you Even when you don't feel his nearness, it may be the hardest steps of faith you take as you seem to walk all alone through the valley of death that keeps stretching on and on. But if you trust that God loves you and that he never leaves you, salvation is yours.